You're listening to the Eltham Baptist Church podcast. I was chatting with somebody last week and we were reminiscing a little bit and he, he brought to mind a thing that I'd forgotten about, um, but I used to have uh, under the age of 10 and it was a thing called a Miller shirt. Anyone remember a Miller shirt? It was a bit of a, there's two of us. Yeah, it was a bit of a, uh, in Western culture and, and fashion, and I'm sure that there are studies that you can do on this, but it was the cowboy period. It's where we all thought we were cowboys. So just picture a kind of a Western style checkered shirt, but these were special. They had pearl buttons that when you kind of ripped it open to show off your seven-year-old chest, um, they, they, they just popped. Like this was amazing. This was an incredible invention. This is before the iPhone, a popping button. Go figure, go figure. And so, and I imagine, you know, our delight at popping buttons. We knew the iPhone was next. It was inevitable. And, and more than that, though, these Miller, the authentic Miller shirts, had a gold thread running, running through them. And um, the imitation ones did not. The one that my mother bought me did not. It was from uh, Target. And uh, I recall the moment that I went to rip open the buttons and uh, they, they, they just flew everywhere, pop, 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 pop. And I was, I was thinking, oh no, how much trouble am I in? But we realized actually that it was actually a, 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 poor, uh, a, a poor takeoff of the real thing. And I do believe we got our money back. But later on in life, I would get my very own real dinky dye Miller shirt, and it had the gold thread through it. And it was, it was I got to tell you, something to behold. Wish I still had it to, to show you, but um, it's no longer with us. But the gold thread was something. You know, C.S. Lewis was once asked as he was walking through, through Oxford, I think he walked into one of, the, one of the staff rooms, and a conversation or a debate actually was, was going as to what is the key distinctive uh, that characterizes Christianity, that sets it a, apart from all other religions. And, and so as, as, as Clive walked in, uh, somebody asked him, what do, you, what do you think, Clive? What's the, the main distinctive of the Christian faith? And without really thinking, he said, oh, that's, that's easy. It's grace. It's grace. Grace is like uh, a thread that runs through the Christian life. I wouldn't perhaps call it a gold thread, but it's, but it's maybe the scarlet thread of the Christian life. We're going to have a little bit of a look at, at grace in, in just a moment. But you see, there is in, in Scripture a thing called a, a grace cycle. Every time God intervenes into a situation, that's what we mean by, by grace. Thinking about Genesis, we start with the fall of, of humanity, and, and there is, is God um, knitting together, weaving together clothing for, for Adam and Eve. Um, uh, mankind falls into uncontrollable depravity, but there is, there is God, instead of just destroying all things, setting aside Noah and his family for a, what we call a reset. Um, there is the Tower of Babel or a Tower of Rebellion where mankind is making a name for themselves. And again, fulfilling his promise to Noah to not destroy humanity, um, he instead scatters humanity and then raises up a nation. That's the chapter 12 Abraham story, raises up a nation under the rule of God. There is the, the slavery in Egypt, but there is also the exodus. There is the rebellion and the wandering, but there is also a new generation that rises up to fulfill the will of God. 
Now they get into a promised land, and, and again they confront a defiant people, but again there is this scarlet cord of grace. Now we get to the story of Jericho, and we've, we've said over the last few weeks, it's a bit of a confronting story. There is the version we learnt in Sunday school, which was all fun as walls fall down and people charge in, but there's the, the version that we actually have in Scripture that talks about women and children being killed, and we need to ask the question, how does this work? Where is the loving character of God in all of this? Where in the story of Jericho is grace? And that's what we want to look at. Where is the thread of grace in this story of Joshua in the Israelites taking uh, siege to the city of, of Jericho? Just by way of background, we have been talking about a couple of principles. I don't have the, the slide for us tonight, but we, to understand the background of this story, we talked about the importance of recognizing that the rule of God is a very, very good thing. You, you want the rule of God in your life. If that was a thread running through the Christian life, that, that thread actually might be, might be a, a, a beautiful purple to talk about the royalty of God and his, and his wonderful sovereign rule. The rule of God, we said, always leads to the life of God. And that could be a, a lush green thread. Um, wherever the life of God is, we're talking about fruitfulness. We're talking about blessing. We're talking about um, the, the lush green life that, that God has called us to. And of course, that results in, in glory. Glory for God and indeed glory for, for those who belong to God as well. And, and that might be characterized by a gold thread. But the rule of God, as much as you want it, is not something that you have to strive for and work hard to attain. That's religion. That's not Christianity. Now, the rule of God follows always the presence of God. Wherever God is present, there you will find his rule. The presence of God perhaps could be described as a brilliant white thread. And all of these threads run through the, the Christian life. So we come to this, this story, and, and this part of the, the taking of Jericho is almost like a part two of an earlier story. In chapter two of Joshua, actually, we actually touched on this a number of weeks ago. But you might know the story um, as the story of Rahab. And this was introduced to us in, in chapter two. In uh, uh, chapter six here, we get a little bit of a hint that this story is not forgotten because in chapter 6, verse 22, Joshua has very specific instructions to two of the men who spied out the land previously, and it is this, go into the prostitute's house, that is Rahab, and bring her out, and all who belong to her in accordance with your oath or your promise to her. And so this is actually a fulfillment of a promise that was, was actually made way back in chapter 2. So we're actually going to go, in finishing this little, little series or this, this part of Joshua, uh, the whole story of Jericho, we're going to go back to chapter 2 and see what we can learn about the, the grace of God here. Firstly, we, we notice that this was a little bit unexpected of all of the visitors that, that Rahab might receive in her home, she was not expecting necessarily two Israelites, particularly two spies. But in verse 1 we read of chapter 2, Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from, uh, some versions say Shittim, but it can also be translated the Acacia Grove. And as I've mentioned before, I think that's a, that's a fine translation. 
Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. And so they went and they entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. Again, a little bit odd for us to think about. Why would they do that? That's a, that's a terrible thing to do. But, but it was actually, strategically speaking, a very smart thing to do because there were often foreigners going in and out of, of such, such places. And, and it would not be, cause such a stir as to, you know, were they to go and, and just mingle in the town square, for instance. So there they are, but apparently word gets, word gets out, and we learn something from this. In verse 9, um, Rahab is talking to the spies, and she starts to tell them a little bit about everything that the people of Jericho understand about Israel and the God of Israel and what is happening. It's quite alarming. Um, she says in, in verse 9, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear, in fact, because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. Quite, a, quite an amazing declaration. In other words... Rahab was, was giving us a big clue here. Listen, we who are fortified here in Jericho, we know what's going on. We've heard the stories, not just recently about you crossing the Jordan, but going way back, even to the last generation, about how God delivered you out of Egypt. We have heard the stories of how great your God is. They knew. They knew this. And yet, here they were, fortified in what was really a a hopeless situation. It was a dark situation. There was no light of hope whatsoever. Now, if you think of dark places and, and, and no hope, I'm not sure what you think of, but I immediately go to our time um, serving on board the, the Doulos, the MV Doulos. We lived on board as a family for a number of years, and though our cabin was above the waterline, um, our porthole during storms um, had to be shut and locked. And so... Uh, so some of the uh, crew would come, come around if we anticipated a storm and, and they would you know, shut and lock, and like seriously lock with a m mighty big spanner, um, the cover to the porthole. We could not open it. Um, and of course, in as much as it was watertight, it, was, it didn't let any light in whatsoever. Come night, we'd switch off the light, shut the door, and as Bron used to say, it felt like we were in the belly of a whale. And many of you have been in the valley of a whale, and you know exactly what I'm talking about. No, you haven't, but you could picture it. There we were in the ship, and, and I tell you, I have never experienced such complete darkness. Maybe you've been in a cave sometime, and long ago you left any passage of light, and somebody finally turns off a torch, and you just get to experience how dark that was. We find ourselves, or can find ourselves, from time to time in those situations. There is not a glimmer of light. And in the same way, in the Christian life, there are times where we experience almost a complete darkness. There is not a glimmer of hope, or so it seems. But into this situation, where the, where the whole city had congregated and were, were locked in as it, as it were, and Rahab, along with her family, were experiencing this same thing. Into this situation, 
all of a sudden there was a glimmer of hope. And it came via two spies. She suddenly saw a way out. She saw a door. God, the God of the Israelites, had provided a possible way out for her. Whenever God intervenes in a situation, that intervention is grace. It is grace. In verse 3 and 4, we see a little bit more of her heart and, and her response to this. So all of a sudden, two spies walk into an otherwise hopeless situation. And the king of Jericho must have found out, and he sent a message to Rahab, bring out the men who came to you and entered your house, because they have come to spy out the whole land. But the woman, Rahab, had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they had come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. But she had actually taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax she had laid out on top of the roof there. The men set out in pursuit of the spies, and, and so it goes. In that moment, Rahab was making a choice, and a very, very important choice. She was choosing to accept the way out that God had provided for her. Grace is, is like a like a door suddenly opened, a, a way out of a situation. Grace is God's unmerited intervention in an otherwise hopeless situation. And here we see Rahab accepting that grace, accepting that open door. Grace, you could say, opens the door, sorry, uh, surrender opens the door to grace. Her posture in choosing to hide the spies up there on the roof was one of really a surrender to the Israelites and indeed the God of the Israelites. Surrender is, is our response to grace, to accept that, that out that God has provided for us. In verse 12, she actually goes on and you see a little bit more of, of what's going on in her head. Now, here's her actual plea. That's like a plea bargain. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father, my mother, my brothers, sisters, all who belong to them, that you may save us from death. Here she is making a plea for help. The word kindness here actually means covenant loyalty. I want you to promise to me as I have promised to you. I will hide you. I will look after you. Please promise that you will do the same for me. She's looking for some covenant loyalty here. Literally, actually, it means to bow your head from the neck like a stork. And that's really what she was, she was doing. Here is this, this covenant that they are entering into together. And in so doing, she's taking on a, a, a posture of, of submission and opening the door here to, to grace. As I said, when we hold out our, our hand to, and fail to acknowledge the, um, the presence of God and the rule of God, 
As often happens, we see that cycle again and again and again throughout Scripture. God's intervention, nonetheless, despite our rebellion, despite our sin, God's intervention in that moment, that is grace. Our response to that, surrender, submission, that's everything. Grace is an open door. Submission opens that door to grace, ready to walk through. Um, I don't know how many of you may have seen the, the movie, The Count of Monte Cristo. Sometimes Hollywood don't really do justice to books, and Alexander um, Dumas's book is kind of something of a classic. It was probably a brave producer and director who took on that task, but, but it was actually an excellent, excellent movie. The main character is Edmond Dante, who finds himself in prison, and unjustly so. Um, he has um, been wronged, and and there is a, there's a bitterness that grows up in his spirit, and, and the writer uh, Dumas, the author, really brings, brings that out. But here he was in a hopeless situation, a cell. Yes, there was a door, but it was, it was not open to, to him, to Edmund. And a strange situation happens, and the movie depicts it really well, where one day as he's sitting in his cell, bitter, bitter as, because of his lot in life, he's lost absolutely everything. And... Uh, he suddenly, it starts, starts out as something he can hear, and he looks over in a corner, a, a strange scraping sound, and wondering if he's lucky, and it might be, might be a rat again that he can, he can capture and eat. This occasion is not a rat. And then what is just uh, um, a sort of something he can hear is now something he can see, and dust all of a sudden falling from the wall, and, and slowly a, a, a brick seems to be moving, and the brick the brick is forced out of place, and then another one, and another one, and another one. And, and the most bizarre thing happens, and a, a, a dirty old man crawls through this, this hole, sort of covered in sweat and mud and dust, and he crawls through this hole and looks up in utter astonishment at Edmund and realizes that for years he has been trying to to tunnel his way to freedom, but he's taken a wrong turn, and instead he's simply dug his way into another prison cell. And uh, all of a sudden he realizes his mistake. It's taken him years to dig this hole, and, and now fate has brought the two men together. Well, not all is lost in one sense, because at least now they actually have you know, some, some friendship they have one another. They have another human being that they can talk to and relate to. And Edmund soon discovers that this mad old priest has much to teach him. And that, that's exactly what he does. He teaches him all sorts of things. He, he takes on school lessons and, and teaches him how to, you know, how, to, uh, uh, how, how to fight and how to handle a sword and, and all manner of things. And then tells him about a secret, that there is a... A huge amount of treasure on an island called Monte Cristo, which is actually a real island. It comes under, under um, the uh, jurisdiction of Italy. Although the story is fiction, there's no treasure on the island. Don't run out from here. You're wasting your time. People have looked. But for the character, there is this promise of treasure on, on uh, the island of Monte Cristo. All he's got to do is get out to get it. And as if teasing him, this, this treasure awaits, but still there is no way out. Again, there was a door to, himself, uh, to his cell, but for Edmund, there was no door that was open to him. But one morning, when he calls out to the priest, there's no response. 
he suddenly realizes that the priest has died. He's passed away from this life to the next. And though there was no door open to him, there was a door now open to the dead priest. They would come and fetch the body and they would bag it up and they would, they would throw it into the water. All of a sudden, through the death of the priest, Edmund finds an open door. He pulls the priest into his cell, well, just the dead body of the priest, the vacant body of the priest. After the, the guards have come and determined that indeed the priest is dead and they, they go off to make suitable arrangements, Edmund works quickly. He, he hides the priest's body in his bed, covers it with his bedding. And then he crawls back in and, and places himself in that smelly, dirty old sack that is about to be thrown off the cliff into the water. And in taking the priest's place, he finds his freedom. It's a picture of grace. There is no way out directly speaking, for Edmund, but through the death of the priest, there was a way out after all. And I think Dumas, the author, expects us to make certain parallels. Even the choice of the island, Monte Cristo, which is the Mount of Christ, gives a hint that there might be a gospel message here. In the same way, we who are stuck in a hopeless, dark situation where there is for us no way out, all of a sudden find through the presence of a friend, the incarnation of none other than the Son of God, Jesus Christ himself, through his death, suddenly there is a way out. That's the grace of God. That's the grace thread that runs all the way through Scripture. That's the scarlet cord that we see here in the story of Rahab, who, by the way, is now in the line of ancestors that will ultimately one day be used of God to bring us ultimate salvation through the Second Joshua, Jesus, which means, of course, God saves. So grace is God's unmerited intervention in an otherwise hopeless situation. Surrender opens the door to grace. But what happens when you get stuck? What happens when that dark place that you are feels so hopeless that though you know there is an open door and the grace of God is present, though you know that and you trust him even, you find yourself for some reason or another paralyzed. That journey from where you are, that journey of surrender, submission, going out of a limb, trusting God, that journey from where you are to the door of grace to avail yourself of it just seems impossible. What do you do? Well, here's a beautiful part to the story. 
Rahab's house was built into the wall of the city. And part of the deal was that Rahab said, give me a sign that you'll be true to your word. And the sign is essentially this. If we live, we promise you, you will live as well. All you have to do is, as a symbol, tie a scarlet cord and hang it from your window. Now, Rahab was in a difficult situation. She and all those in her household would be saved. But by the time the Israelite armies force their way into the city, she can't leave the house, lest she get mixed up with all of the other citizens of Jericho and find herself slaughtered. She's stuck inside. So what's the solution? For seven days, the armies of Israel have been marching around the city. And you can well imagine that as they pass a particular part of the wall of the city, there is a house built into the wall. And, and in that house is a window and a scarlet cord is tied and it's hanging down. They know the story. That's the very window that the two spies came out of for their freedom. That's the window that belongs to the house in which Rahab and her family live. That's the one house we must not touch. And you can imagine them as they, they march by, perhaps looking up. Don't make it too obvious. Don't make it too obvious. That's the one. Look, there's the scarlet cord. Not once twice, not three, nor four, nor five, nor six times, but on seven occasions, they march past that house and they see the scarlet cord. It's almost like it was, was a covering over that house in the same way that the blood of the lamb was a covering over the threshold of the houses that they left or their ancestors left when they left Egypt. Do you feel trapped, stuck, hopeless? You're in a, a dark place. You know the grace of God will provide a way out. But, oh, how are you going to get there? I want to tell you tonight that grace has a long reach. When we speak of grace, we are also speaking equally of the power of God to come and get you out of a given situation. Just as the spies in chapter, we read in chapter 6, verse 22, went to go and get her and her family and bring her out, grace has that capacity. When you can't move, when you are paralyzed, when you long to reach out for the grace of God but can do nothing about it, the grace of God, the power of grace is such that it will come and get you out. It has a very, very long reach. Your father will get you out. Hang on to that scarlet cord. He has you covered. Rahab wasn't forgotten. You were not forgotten. Rahab and her family would not be missed or overlooked. You will not be missed or overlooked. The spies whose lives she protected 
and who swore on oath that as surely as they live, she too will live. They came to get her out. And as surely as Jesus Christ, your Savior, lives, you too will live. And the reach of grace is such that he will come and he will get you out. That's his promise to you. That's grace. There is no situation that you can get yourself into so hopeless that the reach of grace can't find you. That's why it is such a beautiful thread, the thread of grace, the scarlet thread. It's why we love the notion of grace in the Christian life. It's why it's, it's one of the most baffling and puzzling, yet awesome and profound aspects of Christian theology there is to study. It's beautiful. It's amazing. But you can never find yourself beyond the reach of grace. That's God's promise to you. And in the midst of an otherwise puzzling, no, baffling story, with aspects, though, we've tried hard to cover them all that are still yet today a mystery to us and require us to, to run with, as I've often said, the principle, when we don't understand our ways, we nonetheless trust his character. Part of the character of God is his graciousness that will find you in whatever situation you're in. It'll find you wherever you are. It's a beautiful thing. And that's where we end this little story of the city of Jericho. On that note of grace, the story of how God redeems a hopeless situation for a prostitute named Rahab and includes her in a wonderful lineage, even that of the Son of God. Praise God, hey. So whatever your situation is, and no matter how hopeless or dark it looks, not true. You can never be beyond the reach of grace. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your word to us tonight and, and your promise. We thank you for this story and and yes, there are aspects that, that still baffle us today. We, we freely admit that. But in the midst of it, we hear what you want us to understand. That just as you acted in the interests of Rahab long ago, you are here to act in our interests as well. Just as Rahab was not beyond the reach of your grace, neither are we. And thank you that even when we feel that we are in a place, that despite the fact that we believe in you and we trust you and we, we know that you are gracious, perhaps we, we can't work our way out of that situation. but we're willing to patiently 
wait on you to come and get us. Let's pray that you would help us to receive this word tonight. We believe it to be true. We believe it. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. You've been listening to the Eltham Baptist Church podcast. If you'd like to hear more or simply pay us a visit, go to www.elthambaptist.com.au.